Thanks, Eric. Evening, everyone. Um, it's a bit uh, echoey out there. I'm going to vamp whilst uh, they try and fix that. This belongs to someone. Is it John's? Can I give that to you, mate? Thank you. Uh, my name's Mark, by the way. I didn't introduce myself. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's really nice to have you guys here. Uh, continuing, as John said, in our sermon series in Luke's Gospel, going uh, today, picking up from verse 25 of chapter 10. Um, I'm excited to be uh, preaching on this passage. I've had a lot of fun uh, trying to think about this passage and prepare for tonight uh, over the course of this week. And uh, what I'm most excited about this passage is uh, what it shows us about Jesus, really. Uh, When I uh, was leaving my house to come to church this morning, I was walking up the driveway. My three-year-old daughter ran to the window at the front of our house and she yelled out, she knew I was preaching, she yelled out the front window and she said, Dad, don't forget to tell them about how great Jesus is today. And I was like, one, I think I'm doing something right as a parent, so go me. And two, yes, I will. Uh, let's talk about how great Jesus is. So why don't I pray for us, and then, uh, and then we'll have a think about this passage. Uh, Lord God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And we thank you that he is the one on focus in this passage. Thank you that we meet him here, and we see what he requires of us. So God, as we uh, sit with Jesus now in this passage, please... Uh, Help us to see him clearly and help us to see ourselves clearly in light of him. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, ever since uh, Sir Edmund Hillary and Norving Tengay climbed Mount Everest back in 1953, there have been around 4,000 people who have summited Mount Everest. It's a pretty exclusive club to be a part of. Uh, of those 4,000 people, probably the most notable or the one that you should care about is, uh, is this guy here. His name's Reinhold Messner. And apart from having a Ben Folds album named after him, uh, this guy is his serious business. Just by the looks of him, you can tell, can't you? I mean, he's a man's man, this guy. Uh, the reason why Reinhold Messner is significant is because in, in 1978, he became the first man to climb Mount Everest without the assistance of oxygen tanks, something that people thought just was not possible to do. He proved them wrong in 1978. Two years later, in 1980, he topped that, and he became the first man to climb Mount Everest solo, completely by himself. Uh, Normally, when you climb Mount Everest, this 8,800-metre-high peak, uh, it is a group affair. You take Sherpas, you take guides, you take uh, fellow travellers with you as well because there's safety in numbers. It's a, an easier trip to go with some camaraderie. Uh, but when uh, Reinhold Messner climbed, he had nobody to rely on except himself, completely self-reliant as he climbed Mount Everest in 1980. This is what he said about it. Climbing Everest solo was the hardest thing I've done. I was up there alone, completely alone. I fell down a crevasse at night and almost gave up, only because I had this fantasy, because for two years I had been pregnant with this fantasy of soloing Everest, was I able to continue. Now, some people called Messner arrogant for thinking that he could do this. They said it was foolish and dangerous to try and solo climb Everest. They were probably right. But to to those complaints or, or cautions, Messner replied, and he said, without the possibility of death, adventure is not possible. I mean, you've got to love this guy, don't you? Messner was obsessed with what he called meeting the mountain. He wanted to meet the mountain. He said, if you have a highway on Everest, an easy route up, if you have a highway on Everest, you don't meet the mountain. If everything is prepared and you have a guide who is responsible for your security, you cannot meet the mountain. Meeting mountains is only possible if you are out there in self-sufficiency. 
and he was when he climbed, completely self-reliant, complete, completely self-sufficient. Uh, a couple of years ago, in 2017, the solo climbing of Mount Everest was banned by the Nepali government. You can't do it anymore. And in the time from Reinhold Messner climbing in 1980 to the closure of solo climbing in 2017, he is the only person who completely climbed Everest truly solo. Some people had assistance at different legs on the way. He is the only one who successfully made it to the top completely by himself. And I want to suggest to you this evening, uh, I'm not just telling this for curiosity's sake, there's a point that I'm trying to make with this illustration. The point is that there is a spiritual equivalent to what Reinhold Messner did on Mount Everest. There is a spiritual condition of climbing a mountain solo. Uh, it is what Reinhold Messner tried to do to reach, to reach incomparable heights and to do it just under his own strength. I want to suggest to you tonight that some people try to do that when it comes to God that some people think they can make it to the top, to where God is, completely under their own strength. It's an attitude of, of self-reliance, self-sufficiency that some people have in our world when it comes to relating to God. Now, in biblical language, if we had to kind of give that a term, I would probably call it self-justification. Self-justification. It's when a person thinks to themselves, no, you know what? I can go it alone. I think I can make it to the top. I can probably make it to heaven under my own strength. I, I can do everything that God wants me to do. I think I'm okay. I think I'll be all right. So I'm just going to go it alone. That's self-justification. And I want to say that I think that the parable of the Good Samaritan, this passage that we are looking at today, is actually all about that. It's all about self-justification. And I want to try and show you why I think that's the case. Uh, I recognise that as we, as we come to this passage, it is probably familiar to every single one of us. It's hard to live in a Western country and to not know kind of the, the general themes of this story, isn't it? Uh, I grew up singing a song about the Good Samaritan in my uh, Church of England primary school in England. I wasn't a Christian until I was 18, but I knew this story. And the song told me that this story was all about how to be a good person. Isn't that what most people think about the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's an encouragement to you to cross over the road and help the person who's in need. That is probably the way that many of us have heard sermons preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's what most of us assume it is, just a little morality tale. But I want to say that that's actually a misunderstanding of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's a, if, you, if that's what you think the parable of the Good Samaritan is, you fail to understand this in its context, to understand what Luke, as he writes his gospel account, is trying to get us to understand. And so what I'm going to do with you tonight is I'm just going to approach this text and I'm going to ask three simple questions of it. They're questions that you should be in the habit of asking every time you come to the Bible. Very helpful little tool, okay? The first question we're going to ask is, to whom is this addressed? Who's, who is Jesus speaking to here? Who is Luke writing to? Second thing we're going to ask is, why is this being told? Why is this here? Why is this account here this way? Why is it being told? Third question we're going to ask, how should we respond? Those are the three questions, and I want to show you that this passage is all about self-justification. So firstly, this first question we're going to ask, to whom is this addressed? If you've got your Bible, keep it open there to verse 25, and you might think, well, the answer to this one is pretty obvious. Move on, Mark. It's addressed to a lawyer, uh, because look what happens. An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. So clearly, he's the person in view, right? What do we know about this, this lawyer? Well, 
He's not a lawyer in the sense that we kind of understand it. Uh, this guy is an expert in the Jewish religious law, specifically the, the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And his job really was to interpret that law and to teach people how that law applied to their lives. And so he's kind of like a, a lawyer slash theologian. That's the kind of uh, thing you should be thinking about him. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus and he stands up, Luke tells us there in verse 25. Now, you've got to understand, in the context where Jesus would have been, as a rabbi sitting with his disciples, a classroom would be basically everybody sitting in a circle, including Jesus. And to stand up and to speak to the rabbi, to ask the teacher a question, you would have to stand up as a sign of respect. So it appears, doesn't it, that this teacher is coming with respect for Jesus. He stands up to ask his question. But actually, Luke gives us a really important detail at the beginning here, uh, that this, this lawyer has come to test Jesus. That's what Luke says. Now, that's, that's not altogether surprising. Plenty of people in the Gospels come to Jesus and ask him, him questions, not genuinely trying to seek answers, but trying to kind of score points of Jesus, off Jesus, prove how smart they are, or even trap Jesus into saying something controversial. And that seems to be what this, this lawyer has come to Jesus to do. He wants to test him. And so he asks this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? You you should be thinking that's a good question. That is the question, really. I hope that's a question that you have thought about yourself. It's really the question that every human being on the planet should think about. It's the question. And do realise as well that as the teacher comes to ask this question, this is not just kind of like out of the blue. This is not some massive gear shift in the story of Luke's gospel. Actually, given the context, it's entirely logical that the, the, the lawyer has come to ask this question. Because do you remember what has happened immediately before the parable of the Good Samaritan, what we looked at last week? If you've got your Bible, just keep it open. Look a few verses behind you. Look back to about verse 21. At the end of last week's passage, we saw that Jesus teaches that eternal life is a gift from God, that it's not something you can earn, it's something that God has got to choose to give to you. We saw Jesus say, do you remember this? He said that God will choose to reveal himself to whomever he wishes. He's saying you can't earn eternal life, it's a gift from God. That's what Jesus has just been saying immediately before this. And so it's into that context that this lawyer comes along to test Jesus. He thinks he knows better. And so he stands up and he says to Jesus, okay, okay, that all sounds good. I I get what you're saying, Jesus. Yes, eternal life, it's a gift. Fine, fine, fine. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's, What's my part in this equation? Yeah, okay, it's a gift, but that can't possibly be all right. What do I have to do to earn eternal life, Jesus? That's the essence of his question. You see what Jesus does there in verse 26. He kind of turns the question around on him, which is a pretty good move, I think, because this guy is clearly pretty opinionated. He's just asking the question in order to, to get a platform to give his answer. He just wants to go on a rant, I think. And so Jesus asks him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Gives him the microphone. Now, if you ask that to a lawyer today, if you said to a lawyer, what's written in the law? (laughs) There's really two ways that a lawyer can answer that question. Uh, They could pull out all of the legal books and they could tell you what is written in the law word by word by word, tell you every law in Australia, for instance. Or they could kind of summarise the law. They could give you the essence of the law, what's at the heart of it. And clearly that's what Jesus is asking for when he asks this teacher, what's in the law? How do you read it? He wants a, a summary answer. And so that's what the lawyer gives. Look there in verse 28, uh, 27. The lawyer says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbour as yourself. It's a quote from Leviticus 19. The lawyer takes these two kind of major commands in the Old Testament, smushes them together and he says, that's what the law is about. And that's a pretty, actually, it's a commonly accepted answer. The, the Jewish religion at the time, they understood that that was basically the essence of the law. So the lawyer's not being clever here. This is a pretty a stock standard kind of answer. But do think about this for a second. We, we might be familiar with those commands. Maybe you've heard them before. Have you grasped what they mean? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind? What does it mean to love your neighbour as yourself? Have you thought about that? Let's, um, let's dive into those two commands for a second, just so you have a clear picture of exactly what this is describing. What does it look like to, to love God with heart, soul, mind and strength? Well, the uh, English uh, bishop, William Temple, uh, Anglican from the 20th century, puts it like this. He says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Think about that. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. You know what he's saying is this. You know those kind of moments in life when you're you know, sitting in a waiting room for whatever reason and you've got nothing to read, uh, there's nothing to listen to, there's nothing to watch, your phone's run out of battery, there's nobody for you to talk to, you are there completely by yourself and you've, all you've got to do is wait. In those moments, Temple is asking, where does your mind go? When your mind is completely unfettered, when there is no obligation on you to think about anything, to do anything, when you are completely alone, what do you think about? Where does your mind love to spend time? Where does it send your heart racing? What is that thing that you think about in solitude? Is it God? Is it God's attributes? You know, his, his excellencies, his perfections, his faithfulness to you? Is that where your mind goes automatically when it's free to go? No, of course not. We know this. I'm not letting the cat out of the bag here. Uh, that is not where our minds go usually, automatically. It goes to something else. And Temple's point is that whatever else your mind goes to, that thing is your religion. That thing is your deity. It is your God, your faith, wherever your mind goes in solitude. And so, so I think what this command is kind of saying to us is that you ought to love God so much that he dominates your solitude. You ought to love God so much that you are content, no matter the circumstance, because in every circumstance, you have the thing that you want most, the Lord God. This command to love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind is saying, love God so much that it consumes you and then live accordingly. How are you going with that? What about the second command? Love your neighbour as yourself. What does that mean? Well, just think about this. You think of the ways that you love yourself, the ways you take care of yourself. This command is telling us that you ought to meet the needs of other people with just as much force, just as much power, just as much joy and energy as you meet your own needs. And in fact, meeting other people's needs ought to make you as happy as when your own needs are met because to love your neighbour as yourself means that in some sense, your happiness has kind of been wrapped up and enveloped in their happiness. And so now their happiness is what makes you happy. That is truly loving your neighbour as yourself. How are you going with that? Those are Big commands, aren't they? If that's what the law is saying to us, that's a high bar. 
And according to this lawyer, and according to Jesus too, it should be said, that's the essence of God's law. That is what God's law is all about. But, but don't lose sight here. Please don't lose sight, friends, of the question that this is coming from. What was the question that drove this whole thing? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the lawyer's answer to that question. This is what he thinks. He thinks to inherit eternal life, I've got to do that. I've got to love God in an unparalleled way with everything that I've got. And I've got to love other people just as much as I love myself. The lawyer thinks that will get him eternal life. So what do we make of this lawyer? I want to suggest to you this lawyer is not very good at his job because he has fundamentally misunderstood what God's law is all about. He has he's shown that he has not understood the relationship between the law and God's grace. Uh, anybody who knows anything about the Ten Commandments knows that God's law starts with God's grace. Do you remember that? What does God say at the beginning of the Ten Commandments? Before he tells anybody to do anything, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's his grace. Because of God's love and kindness and mercy and grace, he has rescued people. And then and only then does he give people the law. You see, this lawyer has failed to understand that the law was only ever supposed to be given to guide us in our response of love to the God who first loved us. The law was never intended to be a means by which we inherit eternal life. It was not supposed to be a kind of a spiritual brownie points kind of system, a system by which we accrue enough spiritual air miles to get to heaven. But this lawyer... Just like all of the, the, the Judaism of his day, he had so mishandled the law as to think that the law is this ladder by which he can climb to God. And I reckon that that mistake, that mistake of thinking the way to God is through doing certain things, climbing a ladder, being good enough, that's a mistake that is so easy to make. I reckon probably most people in this room have made that mistake from one time or another because that is actually drilled into us from the earliest stages of our life. You know that? You live in a world that will tell you if you're good enough, you will get certain things. It's, you cannot avoid the kind of meritocracy that you are living in in Western world. For instance, just think back to your primary school. If your primary school was anything like mine, uh, then you would have been given merit certificates. You know, those little shiny coloured pieces of paper that would add up certain points and keep you a tally on the classroom wall so you could tell how, how good you were being. You know, you'd get a merit certificate if you had a good test result, but you'd also get a merit certificate for just, you know, being a, a good person as well. Uh, my wife, Catherine, and I were going through some of her old stuff recently, and we found one of her old merit certificates in a box, and I thought it was worth keeping uh, because I thought it was hilarious what she was given a merit certificate for in year two. So she's probably about six or seven. Uh, this merit certificate says it's awarded to Catherine Mayo for being reliable and sensible all the time. <laughs> and I like to tease Catherine about that because I think that makes her sound like the dullest year two kid that you can imagine. Well, who wants to invite a kid who's reliable and sensible all the time to their party? Not me. But that's the worldview, isn't it? Be good, be reliable, be sensible and you will get rewarded. You will get merit based on how good you are, in fact. That's the worldview that is ground into us from the earliest days. Be good and get rewarded. That's just how our world thinks, isn't it? That is how every religion is organised. Do you know that? 
Islam has its five pillars, its fasting, its Ramadan, do this and you will earn salvation. Buddhism has its eightfold path to enlightenment. You've got to make sure that you tick all those boxes. Hindus have their karma, that system of working up enough good that they would be released. And you know, actually, evangelical Christians have their own way of thinking up a, a checklist of do's and don'ts that they fall into the trap of thinking will earn them right standing with God. We can be guilty of this way of thinking too. That is how everybody in this world thinks. You've got to be good enough for God. If you don't believe me, go to a funeral, a funeral even of a non-religious person. And I'll tell you what you will hear because it's the same at every funeral. No matter whether the person had a faith or didn't, every person who speaks of the deceased on the day of the funeral, that what will they say? Oh, he was a good bloke. He was a great guy, this guy. What's, what's the subtext there? He was definitely good enough to kind of get into the next life, wasn't he? We know where he is because he was a good guy. This is how our world thinks. Merit-based religion, brownie points religion, spiritual air miles religion. That's the mindset of this world. And it's the mindset of the lawyer in the story. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. And so the first question, who is this parable written to? I want to suggest to you, This parable is written to everyone who thinks that they can approach God on the basis of their own merits. Everyone who thinks that they can climb that mountain unassisted. That is who this passage is speaking to. This lawyer in the text here, he represents self-sufficient people, self-reliant people, self-justifying people. That's who this is written to. And so... I I, I want to say to you, if if you are someone who is here tonight and you have never understood your need for Jesus, Christians have been banging on about how much you need Jesus all your life and you've never understood why, if you are someone in that camp, then I want to tell you that this passage is speaking directly to you. Uh, If you're a Christian here tonight, hate to break it to you, this passage is not actually addressed at you. This passage is looking at people who think that they can do what it takes to get to God by themselves. That's who this passage is speaking to. That's the first question. Second question, why is it being told? Well, let's keep reading and see how the story unfolds. In verse 28, Jesus likes what the lawyer has said. and He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, how do, you, how do you hear Jesus saying those words? Do this and you will live. Is Jesus saying, yes, that is the path to eternal life? I don't think so. I think Jesus is having a bit of a chuckle here. He's saying, go on then, mate. You think that's the path to eternal life? Go for it. Have a crack. Good luck to you. If you think that you can love God and love your neighbour like that, go right ahead. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And so what do you think that the lawyer should do at this point? If, if, if you were writing this story, how should the lawyer respond? He's just been shown, well, you couldn't possibly hope to achieve this by yourself. He should say, well, Jesus, I can't do that. I can't love God and love my neighbour as I should, so I'm at your mercy. That would be the right response from the lawyer. But it's so far from what the lawyer is thinking, isn't it? Look at verse 29. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus and who is my neighbour exactly, Jesus? You understand that question, right? The lawyer has been face to face by his own admission with God's perfect moral standard. And so now this, this guy who understands his own imperfection, this guy who still needs to justify himself, his only option is to try and lower God's perfect standard. 
to try and kind of hedge the law a little bit so that it's a little bit more humanly attainable. And so he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbour? I, 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 I get what you're saying, Jesus. Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Yeah, okay, I'm doing that already, which he wasn't. But I'm doing that. But just, just to clarify, Jesus, who's my neighbour exactly? I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm fulfilling everything. So who do you want me to love? Is it, is it just, just Jewish people that you want me to love? You could, is it God-fearers as well? Do you want me to love those people, Jesus? Are they my neighbour? What about Gentiles, Jesus? Are they my neighbour too? Are you telling me I have to love them, Jesus? You get the question that this lawyer is asking? That's, that's how self-justifying religion works. You lower the bar, you hedge what is required of you so that it's safely within your grasp. If you are a self-justifying person, then you will overlook the parts of your life that are crooked and broken. And you'll say to yourself, God doesn't really care about them. If you're a self-justifying person, then you tell yourself that you've never fallen short of God's standards. Actually, in fact, God must be happy with the way you're living your life exactly as it is. You know, it's the kind of mentality of somebody who says, well, look, I've never murdered anyone, so I must be doing all right. That's the self-justifying attitude. That's the game this lawyer is playing. Um, back in 2015, when Donald Trump was uh, running for president, he did a Q&A at this thing called the Family Leadership Summit in the US, which as far as I can tell is sort of a Christian family values kind of organisation. And the host, he's sitting on this stage in front of thousands of people, the host asked Donald Trump point blank, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And there was the same kind of tone that's in the room now, some kind of awkward murmurs, some whispers. People didn't quite know what to do with a question that blunt. And so uh, Trump gave an answer. He, he talked for about a minute and he just avoided the question altogether. Uh, the host, God bless him, wouldn't let Trump off the hook. And he said, but have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And this time there was some, some nervous laughter from the audience because that is a strange thing to, to press into, isn't it? And so Trump, he sort of, shifted a little bit in his seat, he made a few faces and he paused and he said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try and do better from there. I don't, I don't think I have. Well, you could hear a pin drop. <laughs> and in the days following that comment, Trump was asked for clarification about what he meant. Haven't asked God for forgiveness? This is, this is what Trump said to clarify his comments. Why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness? if I'm not making mistakes. I work hard. I'm an honourable person. Why should I have to repent and ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? Do you know, friends, the only way that could be true is if he had so lowered God's perfect standard, so hedged what God required of him, that it now reflected his own paltry, pathetic morality. There is no way that he is sinlessly perfect. No way that he has loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, strength and mind. No way that he had loved his neighbour as himself. He hasn't done it. And, and newsflash, none of us have either. We haven't come close to meeting that standard. And so what do we do? We lower the bar. We lower what's required of us. Why should I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I'm not doing anything wrong? Well, do you see, it's, it's to that attitude, to that kind of bar-lowering, self-justifying attitude that Jesus then speaks the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think to, to get the full force of the story that Jesus tells in this passage, you have to know a little bit of the, kind of the background of the Samaritans. They were uh, a people group in the kind of north of Judea. 
uh, and they had been uh, conquered and dispersed and kind of repopulated by successive conquering armies. And so now what was going up in that northern area of Samaria was this kind of like melting pot of ethnicities and cultures and religions as well. And for that reason, the, the kind of the muddling of the Jewish religion, the Jews down south hated the Samaritans. They utterly despised them. They thought they were like half-breeds. The Jews had, in fact, excuse me, uh, invaded Samaria a couple of centuries earlier and destroyed their temple in Mount Gerizim. There's a lot of hostility between Jew and Samaritan. And so to understand the kind of relationship that Jesus described here, perhaps picture a Hamas party member and an Israeli army officer. That's the kind of dynamic. And so Jesus tells this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Priest and Levite, these are two kind of central figures in Jewish religion. And they both see the man. We know that. They didn't just miss him. They see him and they choose to cross the road, pass by on the other side. And, and it's not hard to imagine the kind of conversation that's going through their head at that point, is it? Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I know. I probably should help. But I mean... Who is my neighbour, really, at the end of the day? I mean, we're on this road. It's pretty dangerous out here. This guy's already been beaten up and mugged. If I stop and help him, well, then they might come and beat me up too. And, you know, I'm an important person. I've got important stuff to do. I've got a sermon I've got to prepare and preach. What, you want me to, to just abandon that and go and help this guy? No. The work that I'm doing as a religious person is actually going to be of far more benefit in the long run than if I stopped and helped this guy. And anyway, it's not my job to help him. It's the government's job. And I pay my taxes. I'm sure somebody's already walked past and rung the police and told them about it. And in fact, isn't that a siren that I hear in the background? Do you reckon that's the sort of love of neighbour that God requires? Jesus goes on, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Literally, he was, he was moved from his bowels. <laughs> he, it's a phrase that gets translated as he had compassion of him, on him. And in fact, that's that phrase, he had compassion of on him, is used in Luke's gospel only to speak of God, apart from in this instance. He had compassion on him. The Samaritan does what the other, two other men are unwilling to do. He's the unlikely hero in the story. And, and just look at the, the lengths that the Samaritan man goes to in his care of this beaten man. He, first of all, he comes to this guy who's a complete stranger to him. He owes him nothing. And yet he still tends to him. He pours this oil and this wine on his wounds, which is kind of like a standard medical practice of the day. He's trying to care for his physical needs. He puts the man on his own donkey, which means that now the Samaritan is the one who has to walk through this kind of rugged and dangerous terrain. He brings the man to the nearest hotel. He gives him shelter. He makes sure that this guy is going to be safe from further attack, that nobody else is going to come after him. And he pays the innkeeper to look after the man, enough money to, to stay for at least a couple of weeks. And you see what he says at the end there as well? He says, actually, if there's any more expense, you just let me know and I'll pay for it. He writes a blank check for this guy to care for him. And that detail is actually really significant because, do you know, in the ancient world, there is no such thing as bankruptcy laws. 
If you have a debt that you cannot pay, your options at that point are either sell yourself or sell your family into slavery. That's how you pay off debt. And so this man who has been stripped and robbed and beaten, if his medical costs exceed what the Samaritan has paid, well, then he's going to have a debt when he checks out of the hotel. How is he going to pay it? He would have no choice at that point but to sell himself or his family into slavery. And so this Samaritan, he says, I will care for you. I will save you from the brink of death. But more than that, I will save you from slavery. Do you see Jesus' point in comparing the two groups of people here. The lawyer asks Jesus, come on, Jesus, tell me who my neighbour is. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not playing that game. This is what it looks like to show neighbour love. Neighbour love is, is not limited. You cannot draw a line on who you are obligated to love. It is, it's not limited by kinship or ethnicity or religion even. No, true neighbour love is costly. It's sacrificial. It's thorough. It's complete. Jesus is is showing this kind of word picture to the lawyer, right? And he's saying, come on then. You you self-justifying person who thinks that you can earn your way to God based on your own merits. Come on then. This is what neighbour love looks like. Tell me if for a second you think that there has been one day of your life, let alone one hour of your life, where you have ever loved somebody like this. That's the point Jesus is making. The lawyer should understand, well, of course he hasn't. Of course he hasn't loved like the Samaritan. Friends, we should understand that we have not loved like the Samaritan. We fall so far short of this picture, don't we? Jesus tells this parable to expose the man, to expose every person who will self-justify, to show them, to show us just how pitifully short of God's perfect standards we actually fall. Uh, earlier this week, I went uh, indoor rock climbing. Uh, I hadn't been for a long, long time. Uh, I went with a couple of guys from this service. And I walked into the place and I looked around and I, I, there was a dialogue inside my head and it went, oh, this isn't going to be so bad. I mean, look at this. There's just like there's hundreds of things to climb on the wall, hundreds of grips and handholds. Can't be that hard. And so as I approached the, the first wall and had a, a sort of an idea of kind of what holds I wanted to hold on to, it was kindly pointed out to me that actually it's not a free-for-all. You don't get to pick whatever holds you want. No, you've got to pick a certain colour and climb the wall just using that colour grips. And at that point, my pride uh, sunk and I realised, actually, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And uh, sure enough, I was humbled pretty quickly. Uh, it was much more difficult. And of course, whilst I was there, I could look around, I could see that there were lots of people, really good climbers, those expert climbers, the ones with all their kind of fancy climbing equipment and that sort of thing. And they were scaling the hardest walls, the ones that send you completely upside down. And they were doing it, holding onto things barely the size of a pebble. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know what, actually, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. That's what happens when you are in the presence of true greatness, isn't it? It humbles you. It shows you just how far short of perfection you really are. That's why Jesus tells this parable. It's to show the self-justifier just how pitifully short of God's standards they really are, to pull the rug out from underneath them to the person who thinks they don't need forgiveness. What must I do, says the lawyer? Perfection, says Jesus. So to state the obvious, if that's the standard, then you would be crazy to try and justify yourself, wouldn't you? Third question, final question for us tonight. 
how should we respond to this passage? Well, I hope it's obvious by now. I hope that you can feel the force of this. That if you are someone that sees how far short you fall of reaching the top of that mountain, then won't you come to Jesus for forgiveness? That's all that there is left to do when you realise your own inadequacy. If you realise that you cannot climb that mountain unassisted, then your only hope is that instead God will come down the mountain to you and that he will raise you up to be with him. Now, the lawyer in this episode, he can't even bring himself to answer Jesus' question at the end there. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus asks? The expert in the law replied, ah, the one who had mercy on him. You can kind of feel the word Samaritan stick in his throat. He can't accept that there could be somebody like a Samaritan who has more of an idea about what God requires than he does. Now, of course, we don't know what happens to this lawyer. Luke doesn't tell us. His story just ends right here. But I think that there's nothing in this passage to indicate that this lawyer understood his own moral bankruptcy. Nothing to indicate that this lawyer ever repented of his self-justification. In fact, Jesus tells another story later in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 18. And it's a story just like this that's addressed to people who self-justify. And I want to take you there now. Luke chapter 18 from verse 9. Uh, This is what Jesus writes. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have. I mean, this sounds a lot like the lawyer in our story, doesn't it? Jesus goes on. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, when you realise how desperately in need of forgiveness you are, the only thing for you to do is to come to God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because you see, eternal life, it's only ever inherited. It's never earned. This is what the lawyer had failed to understand from the get-go. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. You You can't earn eternal life. Forgiveness is a gift of God's grace, and he will be pleased to give it to you. So won't you come to Jesus today? Friends, have you realized as you read this passage that we are not the good Samaritan? No, Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan that we're supposed to recognise as we read through Luke's Gospel. Jesus is the one who comes to the broken, to those who are on the brink of death and who tends to their wounds, who binds up their brokenness, who carries them home, who saves them from slavery by paying it all. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan and he will be pleased to rescue you and forgive you If you come to him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, would you do that?
going to pray for us. Almighty God, we are so aware in our most honest moments just how far short we fall of your glory, your perfection, your perfect standard. And God, we admit that it is so easy for us to try and self-justify, to think that we've got it under control, that we can do everything that you ask of us to, to reach you. And God, we are sorry for this foolishness. God, we know that we have no hope apart from you forgiving us. So we ask, Lord, please have mercy on us, sinners, for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen.